A gifted spokesman for God runs away from his Lord and ends up in the pits. This was Jonah's story. Let's join our Truth Encounter study leader, Dave Wurtson, as he shares how Jonah jumped a boat headed in the opposite direction of his orders, treason against his divine king. Ray was a hulk of a man. He weighed about 285 pounds. He was an Olympic wrestler. He's from Pennsylvania. If any of you are from Pennsylvania, you know that wrestling in the state of Pennsylvania is almost as important as football. Not quite, but almost as important. If you're from Pennsylvania, you don't just go to football games on Friday night, but you also, as winter comes, you go to wrestling matches. My friend Ray took all of those wrestling matches, moved into college, and he was so good that he was trying out for the American Olympic team. He had one opponent to beat, and that opponent pinned him. That man that pinned him so that my friend didn't make it to the Olympics went on and won the gold medal in heavyweight wrestling. When I was 16, Ray was directing the children's camp that I was a part of. And I remember he would wrestle with us. He would take on four of us at a time. And he would put his legs on two of us, put one arm on another one of us, put another arm on the other one of us. And he could literally pin with those bulky arms and legs and just unbelievably muscular. He could pin four of us at one time. But Ray was not only a man's man with Olympic strength, But Ray was also the greatest, most gifted children's evangelist that I ever knew. In fact, every Sunday night, we would have about 450 kids arrive at the camp where I was working. And Ray would spin those stories. Some of you have heard the story of Billy and his boat that I've told you. And and I never forget Ray telling a story about Renee and and this big St. Bernard dog that protected uh, Rennie when she was up in the wilderness uh, near Montreal. And Ray would spin these stories, and for years now, I've been telling those same stories. But most of all, when Ray came down to the invitation, I can still hear his voice. He would say, children, I've been telling you about Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ loves you more than mom and dad even, more than your grandparents. Jesus Christ loves you. The reason I can tell you that Jesus Christ loves you more than even your mom and dad or even your grandparents is that Jesus Christ died on the cross so that your sins, so that the bad things you've done could be completely wiped away. They could be forgiven. And Jesus Christ, after he paid the penalty, he took the spanking that we deserved. Jesus Christ was put into the grave, but then he rose again the third day. And if any of you children would like to invite Jesus to come to live inside of you, If any of you would like to meet Jesus, I'd like you to get out of your seat right now. And I'd like you to come forward and invite Jesus to become a friend that will be your friend forever and ever and ever. He'll be a big brother that will stay in your heart. And every single week, I would see about 55, 75, 100 boys and girls and junior high kids that receive Christ as their Savior. Ray was an awesome evangelist. He was also an awesome hunter. During that winter, while I was away at college, Ray, with his kids and with some of his friends, went out hunting in the woods up in the East Coast. Something went wrong in that. They were hunting for a buck. Somehow, a friend of Ray's that was with him got shot in the leg. I really think that Ray's son probably took the shot because Ray was a very careful hunter. 
He was an incredible shot, not only with a rifle, but also with a bow and arrow. And Ray never shot at something that he didn't know what it was. I think that what happened is that Ray's boy took a shot recklessly and wounded their friend. It should have been a minor accident. It should have been something where you turned to put a tourniquet on the leg, hauled him out of the woods, got him to the hospital, and his friend was fine. But something went wrong. And Ray's friend bled to death. He left behind a widow and some precious little kids. And Ray had a pastor's heart. He had a heart that reached out. And so Ray began to minister to this widow that had just lost her husband. And it sometimes happened that relationship of caring, of compassion, began to cross over some lines. And as I began to come to camp during the training week, I realized that something was really wrong. My dad was really troubled. The other staff that I was working with, Dr. Gene Getz, was involved in the camp at that time, and he was deeply troubled. And they came to me about four days before camp was to start. and said, Dave, you've been working at this ranch, this children's camp, since you were 13 years of age. You know the program. We want you to run the program. And I said, Why? The truth came out, and they didn't give me many details, but what had happened is that Ray had got involved with this widow. He had an adulterous affair, and Ray blew out of the ministry. His marriage dissolved. He was taken out of the ministry. He moved away. And Ray became another another one of those statistics, a prophet, a man of God, a great evangelist that got blown out of the ministry because of sexual sin. That's kind of an extreme story. But, you know, I think it's possible that I'm talking to somebody that's right out there that you feel that you've disobeyed. You have taken one step away from God too many. Maybe it's a divorce in your past that some of you were raised in situations that, you know, divorce was the unpardonable sin and yet it happened to you. Some of you even happened to you when you didn't want it to happen to you. And some of you it happened to you because you were adulterous. It's like Ray was. And you have wandered away and you're back. You know, you're in the fellowship of God's people. But you really don't feel that you can really go on and serve the Lord. You don't feel that, that you can help out. You don't feel you can help out with Awana. Maybe some of you are in a gifted evangelist like Ray. And yet deep in your soul you feel that because I've blown it, I can never have my gift used to the Lord again. In fact, I have some really close friends that actually teach that. If you ever blow it like Ray did... God will never use you. He'll never be able to use your gift again. And I understand why they say that, because it's a heinous thing that Ray did. But I want you to turn your Bibles to Jonah chapter 2 today, because I want you to know that Jonah had done a heinous thing as well. You see, Jonah was a prophet. A prophet is someone that heard the voice of God, received the voice of God, and then they were to go out and proclaim the voice of God. They were supposed to be the very mouthpiece of God. And Jonah received a direct command from his commanding officer, from his king, and he took off the other way. That's called treason. And the last time I looked in ethics, adultery, murder, treason are all on the same level. It's very important to understand that as evangelical believers, Jonah has committed treason against the living God, and I want you to know that that's bad. Not the way we use bad, good, that's bad. This is not a bomb. This is bad. This is really, really bad. He's splitting on a ship and God disciplines him. That's what we've been studying about as we've looked at the book of Jonah. God disciplined him. 
I mean, God spanked his servant as hard as any parent could ever spank. I mean, sending a gigantic storm, the perfect storm that we learned about last week, sending this gigantic Mediterranean squall to devour his prophet, that's a heavy-duty spanking. And Jonah is tossed out of the boat, and he's thrown into the water. And that's where we pick it up in Jonah chapter 1. And we'll have to look at the very last verse in Jonah chapter 1 because this is one of the times when the scribe that was putting together our English verses didn't get it quite right. Verse 17 of chapter 1 in the Hebrew text is chapter 2, verse 1. And that's a much better division because we're beginning a new line of thought. The writer Jonah, the prophet, wants you to feel him thrown out of the boat He wants you to feel him hitting the water. He wants you to feel the water begin to engulf him. And suddenly, he finds himself in intense, gushy, mushy darkness. Look what it says. But the Lord, now the Lord. I love those, now the Lord. It looks like Jonah is going to die. How do you think Jonah felt when he hit that water? I think Jonah felt, this is it. I don't swim very well. I'm an Israelite. I don't really like water. We're in a gigantic storm. You know, there's 20-foot waves that are battering the boat. And man, they're going to batter me. And then suddenly he's engulfed in the jaws of a gigantic fish. It's kind of like being caught in a gigantic vacuum cleaner. And he finds himself in the belly of this fish. What would you think was going to happen to you at that point? You've had it. You're dead. And that's what we have here. The Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And I would expect the text to end right there. Jonah is a treasonous traitor. And now the Lord is executing his punishment against him. But what I want you to realize is that in the story of Jonah, the belly of this fish is not his electric chair. It's not his lethal injection. It's not his divine execution. But the Lord is using the belly of this fish redemptively. This is the place where Jonah is finally going to get himself back turned towards God. You know, I think there's very possible as we think about the redemptive belly of this fish, I think it's possible that some of you can look back over your life and you can remember some really bad storms. Some of you, as you look back over your life, you can think, you might be a teenager, you could be, uh, you know, a young adult in your 20s. You might be someone that's had a lot of years of experience. But it's very possible as you look back over your life, Maybe it was when you went away to college, like a lot of our young people are doing right now, and we need to really pray for them. A lot of our young people are just starting out college. The first month that they're there, they're going to decide. Some of you moms and dads are really concerned because you're not sure where the heart of your kid is. And often you come to me, Dave, can you get me connected with the right kids? And I want to share something with you about your kids. Your kids will find exactly where their heart is. That's what will happen in the big university. That will happen when they go away. What happens to kids is when they're put on their own and when they've got to decide what they're going to be, they're going to do what some of you did. Some of you can remember being raised in the Bible. You remember learning about Jesus. But you went away and you got in a class that kind of degraded the Bible, pointed out to what you thought were errors, You didn't take the time to ask maybe your pastor or ask a Dallas seminary professor or ask someone that you would know whether or not what your prof was telling you was really the gospel truth. Because good night, there's been hundreds of thousands of pages written about this book and every problem that any agnostic professor could ever raise in a university classroom has been dealt with by guys and men and women that have bigger degrees than your professor at a university. I guarantee that. 
You happen to be part of a faith that has some of the greatest minds that have ever lived. God usually calls just the common folks. But in his grace, over 2,000 years of church history, he's also chosen some real, brilliant men and women. And there's not a thing that a college professor can bring up about this book that can't be answered. But when you're starting out in college, it's easy to not hear that. And you really want to just have a good time. You want to kind of throw out restraints. And so you start partying. And as a man, you start doing some things with women that you shouldn't do. You get a little bit drunk, and then you find yourself getting drunk quite often. Pretty soon, you find yourself not opening this book at all. Pretty soon, you find yourself not going to church at all. And as you graduate from university, we couldn't tell whether or not you were ever related to Jesus at all or not. The way that you live externally. And some of you went for many years like that. Some of you went in and out of different marriages, different relationships. And if you look back over those situations, you're going to find out that as you began to run from God, the Lord brought terrible storms into your life. He usually started out with some little storms, financial difficulties. Things don't seem to work out. And you've got to scramble to try to get that to work out. And then relationships don't work out. And what the Lord is doing is he's showing you that he loves you. And if you're running away from him, you're running away from the one that can hold your life together. You're running away from the one who can give you joy, who can give you happiness. And the college person or the young person in their 20s that's saying, I don't want this killjoy. I don't want this God that's taking everything away from me is not relating to the real God because the real God is not the one that destroys your life. He's the one that gives you life. We believe with all of our heart that our daddy in heaven is a good God. He's a loving God. And if you stay close to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, contrary to what a voice inside of you from the evil one is constantly saying, if you stay close to the true God, your life's going to be relatively together. Now, sometimes God allows his servants, like Job, to have storms because of nothing they did. It has something to do with a great conflict between good and evil. And that's a terrible thing. And I want you to know that when you see someone in a storm like Jonah was facing, when you see them cast into the sea and you see a big fish swallow them up, don't automatically conclude they're a Jonah. Because that's not the only reason that we go through storms in life, that we go through stressful times in life, that we get swallowed by some really big fish. There can be a lot of reasons why that happens. The Lord Jesus says that those that love him, those that seek to serve him, will face suffering and trouble. But I do want you to know that part of reality is that some storms in life, some stress in life, some very distressful attitudes in life come because you're running away from God. And I want to say it loud and clear. If you run away from God, you're running into really bad stormy territory your sail might be sunny it might be easy it might be calm for a time but eventually the way life works out eventually there's going to be a great big storm and some of you are going to be tempted as you're hurled into the sea to curse god especially when you get swallowed by the circumstances and you're going to say see there i told you that god wasn't kind and what you're going to miss is that even that distressful, horrible, life-threatening situation is not to get you to be hurt, but it's to bring you back. And the whale that you think is destroying you, very possibly, is the redemptive belly of the fish where God wants you to wake up. 
Now, what I just did is applied the belly of the fish, and, and some of you have been raised in liberal churches where that's all they believe about this fish. And I want to I, I want to stress this again because I stressed it last week, but it's one of the most important points that you, as a believer in Jesus, or if you're examining what it means to believe in Jesus, you need to really get this together. You see, as I look at the commentaries on the book of Jonah, and if we look at verse 17 here, now the Lord ordained, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah up, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. For the rest of the, the commentaries, usually there's a debate. And the debate goes like this. The liberal scholar says, like I shared with you last week, there's no way that a whale could do this or any fish could do this. So what happens is the fundamentalists, what they do is they go out and they examine all the fish stories that you can possibly find. They interview sailors. They go to biologists. They go down to, the, the, you know, to Galveston and go to the oceanography school and they try to find a great fish. See there, a liberal scholar? It could happen. That's not the point. Both sides are missing the point. The liberal and the fundamentalists that start to argue back and forth like that, they're arguing on the wrong basis. I want you to know the big issue in the book of Jonah. And this whale issue really focuses it. You have to decide in your life whether you believe that material forces and nature is all there is. And you're going to believe that unless your senses can see something, and unless it's reproducible pretty consistently, you're not going to believe. That's a materialistic, naturalistic view towards the world. There's no upper story. There's no God that's out there. If he is, he's so far away, he never intervenes in human life. One of the biggest temptations in our society is for you to believe that that's what it is. You go to a funeral and you hunger, you'd like to believe that the person went somewhere, but you're not so sure. Because you look at just the corpse and you feel like maybe it's just a bag of chemicals. Maybe it's just, that's all there is. That's very dominant. If you're going to work, a lot of you are going to be exposed to men and women that live as if there's no supernatural. They live as if everything's just natural. And see, that's what's wrong, even with a fundamentalist that's running to find the whale shark or the sperm whale or something. If, if I could somehow find in nature an animal that could do this, then I can say to the liberal, see there, it can happen. What Joan is saying is you need to be a supernaturalist. In fact, I want you to know it's possible, and I'm not sure God did this, but it's possible that this was the only fish that was ever created that can do this. In fact, the old Jewish rabbinic uh, interpretation of this, it says the Lord appointed a great fish. And that word appoint is used, like in Daniel chapter 1, it says, now King Nebuchadnezzar appointed a meal and a diet for Daniel and his friends. What is it saying? It's saying Nebuchadnezzar is in control of things. Daniel wants these Hebrew captives to eat certain food, so he appoints a meal that they're supposed to have. What Jonah is claiming is that the great king of heaven, the Lord of heaven and earth, much greater than Nebuchadnezzar, much greater than any pharaoh, the greatest king in all the universe, ordained that a great fish would have a meal, and Jonah would be the meal. God even had this sense of humor. Nebuchadnezzar appoints a meal for Daniel, God's prophet. In the book of Jonah, the great king of the universe has his prophet become a meal for a great fish. 
based upon the book of Jonah, and every student, every young person, every adult, you're going to have to decide whether you're on the side of the biblical God who can do what he very well pleases, or you're just going to believe in naturalism. The book of Jonah says that the Lord God, who's the creator, he created the sea. If you have a problem with supernaturalism, this whole book is filled with supernaturalism. God's the one that can hurl a storm. Storms don't just happen to Jonah. God hurls the storm at Jonah. And it pictures him like God being a javelin thrower that hurls a mighty tempest at Jonah because he wants to get his life straightened out. God is the one that calms the sea instantly. God's the one that prepares a big fish. God's the one in our next chapter when we study about the repentant city. We learn about the greatest revival that ever took place. God worked an incredible miracle. The miracle of the book of Jonah isn't God keeping Jonah alive in this big fish. The miracle that I have a hard time swallowing in this book is Nineveh repenting. You see, this whole book is about supernaturalism. In chapter 4, we're going to have another miracle. The Lord's going to cause a gourd to miraculously, just astronomically grow. And then the Lord's going to appoint, same word again, he's going to appoint a little worm to eat the root out of that gourd, and the gourd falls over dead. Perfect timing. So if you don't believe in supernaturalism, if you're going to be a naturalist, you're going to have trouble in every single one of these chapters. And I want you to understand that. Because one of the biggest decisions that you're going to make about your life, one of the biggest decisions you're going to make about your life, whether or not you walk out of here today believing that there's a creator God who brought the rain to us. Do you believe that? It wasn't just natural forces. It wasn't just impersonal matter and energy colliding and by probabilities kind of like billiard balls colliding. We finally ended up with a low that finally brought us rain. That's not what this book says. The book says that God's in control of all these highs and lows. The Bible also tells it that there's a tremendous twist in nature. It's not perfectly according to the heart of God because God's allowed a twist. He's he's allowed a rebellion to take place. And that's why when you look at nature, there's some horror in nature. And there's some terrible crises in nature. And sometimes tornadoes blow people away. It's almost like recklessly. The Bible's the only book that can explain all that. And I want you to know the way the Bible explains it is that the Lord really is the Lord of creation. And one day, he's going to totally redeem nature. The Bible presents a living God that's not a watchmaker that wound it all up and then disappeared. It presents a supernatural father who's involved in his creation every single day. If God was involved in Jonah's storm, and if God was involved in Jonah's fish, And I believe with all my heart that the Lord has the power to appoint a fish that's going to be capable to keep Jonah alive. I also want you to know that this fish is not to destroy Jonah. It is to rescue him. Because in the next part of the chapter, we have Jonah's incredible prayer. Some of you that are sitting there, and you've been swallowed by circumstances, swallowed by deadly things that have happened to you. Some of you are kind of recovering from that. And now you're starting to come back towards the Lord. And you're beginning to pray with Jonah. I want you to stick with me. Because Jonah tells us an awful lot about what my friend Ray needs to do. Let's look at the prayer of of the repentant prophet there in Jonah. Right at the beginning of chapter 2 in your English text, verse 1. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord. The Lord is God. Aren't you glad the Lord can hear prayer any place, any time? If any of you think that you have to pray just inside this building, you got it wrong. The Lord can have you talk to him inside the belly of your pickup truck. He can have you talk to him inside the belly of a hospital room. 
He can have you talk to him inside the belly of your living room when you can't sleep at night and you're, and you're restless. God, if God could hear Jonah talking to him from inside the belly of this fish, then he can hear you talk to him anywhere, any place, anytime. Now, how does Jonah pray? He starts out, in my distress, I call to the Lord. In my straightful, stressing, pressure time, that word distress is a word in Hebrew that pictures you in, in situations that are pressing in upon you. It's like a straitjacket that's squelching the life out of you. In my distress, what do you do when you feel like that? I want you to learn to call to the Lord. And he uses the covenant, the personal covenant name for God. He doesn't just say to the nebulous God. He says, I want you to call. I am calling to my personal covenant God who's promised to be there for me. I called to the Lord. And because he called to the God that was really there, guess what happened? God answered him. You see, when you pray, there really is a God that's there. This is part of our faith commitment. When you pray to your covenant Lord, when you pray to the God and Father of Jesus Christ, when you cry out to him from the midst of your distress, because he really is there, and because supernaturalism, as taught in the Bible, really is true, as you live your life, he'll answer you. Jonah goes on to give us a testimony. He says, from the depths of the grave, and, and the picture there is from the depths of Sheol. Sheol is the word in the Old Testament that stands for the place of alienation from God, the place of death, the place of where you're in darkness sometimes. And Jonah is picturing himself in the pits of the grave. Jonah really feels that he's had it. And he has a good reason. Man, if you're at the bottom of the Mediterranean Ocean, in the belly of a great big fish, and we're going to find out later that he got seaweed wrapped all around his head, I would kind of think, I'm in the pits of, of the grave too. I've had it. If I'm not dead now, and I'm just kind of dreaming all this stuff up, then I'm going to be dead pretty soon. And that's what Jonah's expressing. It says, from the depths of the grave, I called for help. I called for assistance. And you listened to my cry. I want every one of you to know. And oh, please listen to me. Sometime in your life, you're going to feel like you're in the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea in the belly of a great fish. And there's absolutely no hope. And you're going to feel that there's no one you can call out to. You're going to feel that if you pray that God will never listen to you. Those are lies from the pit of hell. Satan will tell you that you've blown it too many times. What Satan, I'm sure, was telling Jonah is, Jonah, you're a rebellious prophet. You're running the wrong way. The reason you're in the belly of this fish is because you were going the wrong direction. You're a traitor. What right do you have to think that you can ever call out to God? Some of you have listened to Satan's voice again and again and again. The reason you don't really grow, the reason you don't really go on, the reason you don't turn full face towards God and really get close to him and allow him to work in your life is you believe this idea, I'm just too bad, I'm just too evil, God won't listen to me. That is a lie. Terrible lie. And the next lie Satan will tell you, since you're in such a terrible situation, since your life is being sucked out of you, why don't you just end it quick? And we've got a society that is rapidly moving towards doctors even telling you, you're an old person, your health is failing, you're in terrible, distressful situations, let us take you out of your pain, let us take your life. Brothers and sisters, do you see where we're headed? That's a total denial of the supernatural. It's a total denial of the living God. 
It's not letting God be God and we're going to be God and we're going to decide when someone takes their life. And Jonah's saying, I thought that I was in the depth of the grave, but Jonah, unlike so many of us, Jonah called out to God. And all I want to say to every one of you, there's nothing you have done, there's no place you have been, there's no sin you could have ever committed that you can't wake up in the belly of terrible circumstances and finally look to the covenant Lord and say, God, and God doesn't hear you. Instantly, he hears you. That's what Jonah is telling us. He cries out to the Lord God and the Lord answered, answered him. In the next verse, in verse 3, he begins to give us a little picture about what he was facing. You hurled me into the deep. And Jonah's reminding of how the sailors hurled him into the ocean. You can imagine how Jonah must have felt. He's recounting in his prayer his experience. Into the very heart of the sea, he pictured himself, you know, curling into these dark waves. And then he pictures himself and the current swirled around me. All your waves and your billows and your breakers were sweeping over me. I think Jonah's picturing what it was like when the sailors tossed him in the ocean. And if you don't swim very well and you look into the jaws of the ocean, I remember being out in the Caribbean, even at night, when the waves start rolling on a big ocean liner and you look down into that inky darkness and feel the powerful winds, there's something incredibly devastating about a storm at sea. Some of you have been there. You know what I'm talking about. Jonah is picturing that storm at sea. And what he's picturing that he's hurled right into the middle of that storm. He's hurled overboard. And those big waves start breaking upon him. He feels the powerful currents. I don't know if you've ever been in the ocean when the powerful currents catch you. I never forget swimming like at Daytona Beach when there was a really wicked undertow. And the undertow would just suddenly just catch a hold of you. And you'd find yourself like maybe 400 yards. What I thought as a little kid, it was the middle of the ocean. Man, it was scary. The currents of the ocean grabbing hold of you. And Jonah's describing all that. And then he said, I have been banished. I have been banished from your sight because he was a traitor. But notice what he says, yet I will again look towards your holy temple. There is Jonah's hope. In the Old Testament for an Israelite to look towards God's holy temple was to be reminded of the place. That's where we go to meet the Lord. In the Old Testament, the Shekinah glory would be on that holy temple. And Jonah, in the belly of this fish, is picturing himself going up to give thanksgiving to his Lord. He pictures himself bringing burnt offerings, sin offerings, to cover his sin, to remind him of the coming Messiah. He pictures the intimacy and the joy. What Jonah is saying for an Old Testament Israelite is that I looked towards the holy temple. I want to tell you that as a New Testament saint... You have something that's even better than looking towards the holy temple. I hear this terminology from time to time. We even sing it from time to time. We have come into this house to magnify the Lord and worship him. How many of you ever sung that? And you know what? You know what you are? You're Old Testament saints when you sing that song. Some of you have the idea like we're now gathered in the holy sanctuary. But I want everyone to be really clear in the New Testament... This is not the holy sanctuary. You don't have to look towards Jerusalem. Like right now, Palestinians and Israelis are trying to kill themselves about the Temple Mount. That's what it's about. Because in Jewish worship, the Temple Mount is holy. I mean, they worship a wall. 
They pray at a wall. You put notes in a wall. And I've seen it many, many times. And I respect what they're doing because there's a hunger in the human heart to get close to the presence of God. And the Palestinian Arabs that are up on the mountain throw rocks down on the Jews trying to get up on the mountain because they say, this is our mountain. We control. This is the holy, second most holy place in Islam. And then they hurl grenades at one another. You know what both sides need to learn? God doesn't really care that much about Mount Zion, that holy mountain. It's not that important to him. Solomon even said in the Old Testament, not even the universe can contain him. What do you think he's going to do with a little mountain? In the Old Testament, he was teaching us his children. He said, yes, I'm going to come down, but Jesus taught the woman of Samaria, there's going to come a day when you'll worship neither on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, for a Samaritan, or down in Jerusalem. Because those that worship the true God must worship him in spirit and truth. And I'm going to cause a whole new movement to take place where God's going to dwell in the human heart. So when you pray to your Father in heaven, you know what? You don't have to face towards Mecca. You don't have to face towards Jerusalem. All you need to do is say, Lord, you are closer than my very breath. When I hear my heart beating, you're even closer than that. God, you are right there. Isn't that awesome? You don't have to think about looking towards some holy temple. The scripture says if you invite Jesus to come into your life, you'll become the holy temple. That's the wonder of the new covenant that Jesus has brought to us. And so we have something much greater than Jonah. But Jonah, as an Old Testament saint, was doing what an Old Testament saint should do. He's looking back towards the presence of God. And the presence of God was revealed for Jonah in that holy temple in Jerusalem. And Jonah is getting himself right with God. What I'm telling you is you don't have to run anywhere. You don't have to look anywhere. Right in your own heart, you can look to the Lamb of God. You can return to him, and he'll hear you. The waters engulfed him in verse 5. The deep surrounded him. Seaweed was wrapped around his head like I was describing to you. Man, he went for a run in this fish. The fish took him right down to the base of the mountains of the sea. The roots of the mountains, I sank down. Jonah pictures himself in this fish's belly at the bottom of the mountains of the sea. And he pictures himself barred. It's like earth's bars are sealed shut behind him. And he feels in that condition that there's no way out. But again, look what he does. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. You know what Jonah is telling you? When you cry out to God like he did, when you go back to intimacy with God again, then the bars will be lifted. The prison house of despair, the prison house of being stressed out, and the prison house of darkness will be opened up, and you can walk into freedom again. That's what Jonah said. He's saying, I thought I was in the most inescapable place. No way out. The bars of all the earth had been sealed shut against me. And yet Jonah declares that the true God set me free. Now he has a lesson for us. He says, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And I think if Jonah was here today, he would say, I want all of you, when you feel your life is ebbing away, because you're running away from God, and you start to experience the storm that that brings, when you feel your life is ebbing away, I want you to remember the Lord. I want you to remember the Lord. I want you to come back. He says, my prayer, I lifted my prayer. It rose to you, to your holy temple. And then he says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. The word that he used for worthless idols is meaningless nothings. I love that literal translation of that. Those who cling to meaningless nothings forfeit the grace that could have been theirs. 
You see, every one of you today are trusting in someone. You're building your life on someone. You're allowing something to give meaning to your life. And I want to ask you, are you holding on to meaningless nothing? Some of you men are sitting here saying, Dave, as I really am honest and think about it, what really gives me life is climbing up the ladder in my business. And slowly but surely, I have some goals. By the time I'm 40 years old, I'm going to be a millionaire and I'm going to take over the planet. You know, there's going to come a day when that'll be a meaningless nothing. Ted Turner has lived that life. He came up with a brilliant idea that people would listen to 24-hour news. In fact, he built downtown Atlanta with his idea, CNN. And when you go to Atlanta, they worship CNN. There came a time in Ted Turner's life when he sold it for millions upon millions upon millions of dollars. But if you want to see how it becomes this meaningless nothing, Ted Turner built his whole life around CNN. It's a meaningless nothing. I heard a radio announcer mocking what CNN was doing on the news, making a joke out of what Ted Turner got elected and nominated as the man of the year by Time magazine. Now it's becoming, slowly but surely, just a meaningless nothing. But that's what an illustration. Every single thing that we hold on to. I've shared with you about, you know, doing the biker funeral. And I couldn't believe it. Here's a man dead. As we put him in the grave. And I respect their imagery. I want to pray for them. But I thought they turned on a Harley Davidson as my friend was lowered into the grave. And they started saying things like, he's rioting again. How did they know that? How did they know that? I felt like crying out. How do you know that he's rioting anywhere? What does a Harley have to do with eternal life? The truth of the matter is, on the last biker trip, my friend had to drive his truck because he wasn't strong enough to drive a Harley. What do you do when the days come that your legs aren't strong enough, you'd fall right off a Harley because you're so weak? What do you do then? And some of you guys at midlife are starting to feel it. Man, you want to drive your Harley. You want to have your new woman. You want to have some sensation. Don't cling to meaningless nothing. Those who cling to meaningless nothings forfeit the incredible, wondrous grace that God wants to pour into their soul. Jonah closes the chapter, and he says this. But I will cling with a song of thanksgiving. I'm going to sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will make good, because salvation comes from the Lord. And the chapter closes with the Lord's deliverance. And the Lord God, just like he ordained the fish to make Jonah a meal, now the Lord ordained that the fish gets sick, And some of you kids that like to watch some really bad humor on movies, you're going to find out your heavenly daddy has some of that in him because this big old whale gets indigestion and vomits, that's the word that's used, vomits Jonah right up on the shore. And he's ready for the next adventure in the next chapter. My friend Ray went away from the Lord like I described. He was a traitor in many ways. Before my dad died, my dad died in 1996, before my dad died, probably about a year before my dad died, I suddenly got a call. And my dad says, Dave, you're not going to believe this, but I just talked to Ray. I said, you mean Ray, the guy that I worked with? I said, yeah. Guess what? Ray's working out in Colorado. He's got a beautiful hotel out there. But I also want you to know, Dave, that he called me up and he said, Jack, I just want you to forgive me for what I did. And I also want you to know that I asked the Lord to forgive me. And I just thought it would be really important to get back in touch with you Because the Lord has put my life back together. You see, Ray came to the point when he turned towards the Lord God of heaven. He turned back towards the holy presence of God. 
My dad says, Dave, you got to call him. you got to call him because he wants to talk to you. So I got on the phone. I called him up in Colorado. He says, Dave, man, if you're ever up in this area, you need to come and see me. You're not going to believe what the Lord is doing. I have this resort and tons of people, they want to find themselves and they want to go to Colorado and they come into this resort. And man, I'm leading one person after another to the Lord. Boys and girls, teenagers and adults. Man, the Lord's using the proclamation of the gospel. And I couldn't help but think, there's his gift of evangelism being used again. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that you're in a church family that believes in the God of the second chance, the third chance, the fourth chance, the fifth chance. If you turn with a truly repentant heart, you can come back. Ray blew it. But when he woke up in the belly of distress and turns back towards the Lord, God forgave him, God renewed him, and guess what? God used his gift again. There's some of you that I want you to be vomited up on the shore and I want you to get going towards the Nineveh that the Lord wants you to reach for him. I want you to wake up today. I want you to get vomited up on the shore and I want you to get going. Some of you men are saying, I could never be a leader because of what I've done in my past. I got news for you. Almost every one of our leaders has sinned. All of them have. Not almost, they all have. It's just a cop-out. Listen to what I'm saying today about the repentant prophet. God forgives. And then God, as we're going to learn next week, recommands. Maybe some of you are in the belly of that fish and you need to wake up. In the belly of that fish, you need to turn towards God. And like Joan of all, you need to say, God, I'm in terrible stress, but I'm looking to you. And I want you to touch my life. And I want to cast myself upon the covenant loyalty that you have towards me. Father, I just pray that if there be any rays that are here today, as they look back over their life, they've really fouled up. And they've gone through a time of being cast to sea. I pray, Lord, that you would help them, even now as we close this service, to wake up, to turn towards you as the saving covenant Lord the gracious, forgiving daddy in heaven, the one that doesn't restore his son partly, but the one that creates a party for the repentant prodigal. And then you restore him to full son status and full daughter status. I'd ask you, Lord, that you would really set some of my brothers free that have felt that you could never forgive them. I pray that they'll read Jonah over and over and over again. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.